Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Foundations Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This weekly podcast is designed to accompany your discipleship group and help you build a strong foundation in the Christian faith. We want to equip you so you can be unleashed to obey Jesus' command to make disciples. We want to make Jesus' final words our first work. Welcome to another episode of the Foundations Podcast. Last week, we talked about why we should read the Bible and which translation we should read. Now, this week, I want to give us an overview of the storyline of the Bible. So here's the amazing thing about the Bible. The Bible is such a diverse book. It actually contains 66 individual books. So there are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. It was written by over 40 different authors from all sorts of walks of life. So you've got people who are kings, fishermen, shepherds, tax collectors. It was written in three different languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic as well. And the New Testament was written in Greek. The Bible was written on three different continents. So Africa, Asia, and Europe. And it was written over a period of about 1,500 years, spanning all the way from about 1,400 B.C. to 90 A.D. So about 1,500 years. But the amazing thing is, despite all this diversity, the Bible still speaks with absolute unity and authority and weaves together to form this one overarching story. But here's the problem. Many people don't have a good grasp on what that story is, especially when it comes to the Old Testament. What tends to happen is we, we get scripture in these bite-sized pieces, right? We hear stories like David and Goliath and Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and, and Samson and Delilah. We hear all these stories, but we have no idea how they all fit together. And then you jump into the Bible and you try to understand it, but you tend to just get lost, so I like to compare the Bible to a puzzle. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of puzzles, but I like the analogy. Every individual piece of scripture fits together to form an overarching picture of redemption and salvation. But if we don't understand that big picture, it's kind of like trying to put a puzzle together without the picture on the box. If you've ever tried to put a puzzle together without the picture on the box, it's pretty hard to do. It's hard to make sense of the individual pieces of a puzzle if you don't even have the picture that you're trying to make. If you don't have that picture on the box, it's pretty tough. And in the same way, if we don't understand the overall story of Scripture, it's hard to make sense of individual passages. So what I want to do today is, is give you the picture on the box, so to speak, the picture on the box of Scripture, so that when you read individual passages, you have a little bit more context as to where you are in the overall story. Now, keep in mind, this is just a, a 30,000 foot view. Okay. We can't cover a lot of details, but I, I think you'll find this helpful. So what is the story of the Bible? So first we of course start with Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God creates the world for his glory and he makes mankind, he makes people in his own image and likeness. And as image bearers of God, people are made to image God or to glorify him and to multiply and 
fill the earth so that the entire earth is filled with God's glory. But instead, they choose their own path. Mankind falls into sin, so they disobey God, which brings horrible consequences, including death and suffering, and worst of all, separation from God. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, where they had perfect fellowship with God and with each other. And then as mankind multiplies, instead of spreading God's glory, they spread sin. So God judges mankind by sending a flood. But God, in his mercy spares one righteous man, you probably know him, Noah. He spares Noah and his family in the ark. So the the flood is like a new creation, in a sense. It's a fresh start, a new start. And Noah and his family are given the same command as Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. But mankind continues to degenerate into further sin, culminating in the Tower of Babel, where instead of Obeying God's command to multiply and fill the earth, mankind decides to congregate in one spot and try to make a name for themselves. So at this point, it seems like there's really no hope for humanity. Sin is just out of control. But God, in his grace, starts to enact this plan of salvation. So God chooses a man named Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And God makes a covenant with Abraham, promising him countless descendants, land, and he promises to bring a blessing through him that will extend to all the nations. So these promises made to Abraham extend to Abraham's son, Isaac, and then to Isaac's son, Jacob. And then Jacob, whom God later renames Israel, which means strives with God or struggles with God. Jacob or Israel has 12 sons, who become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So at the end of the book of Genesis, there's this severe famine, and Jacob and his family of about 70 people at this point are forced to migrate to Egypt to find food. So at this point, Abraham's descendants are far from countless. Okay, There's about 70 of them. They aren't in the land promised to Abraham, or the promised land, as we call it, and they definitely haven't brought a worldwide blessing yet. But God isn't finished. So then we come to the book of Exodus and the Israelites have become numerous at this point. So numerous that the Pharaoh in Egypt perceives them as a threat and he enslaves them. So Israel is in slavery for 400 years. And once again, it might seem like all hope is lost, but then God raises up Moses. This is about 1500 years before Christ. He raises up Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery and out of Egypt. God performs many miracles, including the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, to lead his people out of bondage through what is known as the Exodus. So Moses and the Israelites escape Egypt through the Exodus, and they come to Mount Sinai, where they receive the law from God, and that includes the the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, but the law is further detailed in the book of Leviticus. So God makes a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, and if Israel is obedient to the law, God will dwell in their midst and bless them as they live in the the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. As Exodus 19 says, Israel will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation who displays God's glory to the nations. So God wants Israel to show the rest of the world what it looks like to live under his rule. But if Israel is not faithful to the law and the covenant, 
they will be removed from the promised land, just as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and they will be punished. So now we come to the book of Numbers. After Israel leaves Mount Sinai, they set out for the the promised land, and they come to Kadesh Barnea, which is a city just south of the promised land. This is in Numbers 13. And from Kadesh Barnea, they send out 12 spies to scope out the promised land. Okay, And only two of the spies come back with a positive report. That's Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua trust God and they trust God's promises. But 10 of the spies come back with a negative report saying there are giants in the land and the cities are fortified and there's just no way that we can take this land. So, of course, the Israelites listen to the 10 spies and they want to return to Egypt. They say, why did we come out here in the wilderness to die? Let's go back to Egypt. So because of their lack of faith, God judges the Israelites and causes them to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. We see this in the book of Numbers. They spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness until the entire older generation of Israelites dies, except for Caleb and Joshua, the two faithful spies. Then at the end of the book of Numbers, the new generation of Israelites is in the land of Moab, which is just east of the promised land. And it's there where Moses gives the new generation the law a second time. And that's recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, which means second law. Okay, So he reminds this newer generation to love God and to trust him and to remain faithful to the covenant. So after the older generation dies, including Moses, Joshua becomes the new leader of Israel. And he leads the Israelites across the Jordan River. And remember, they crossed the Jordan on dry ground, just as Moses and the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. So they cross the Jordan River, they enter the Promised Land, and God gives them a miraculous victory at Jericho. And then they defeat the Canaanites living in the Promised Land. So after completing their conquests of the land, the Israelites then divide the land amongst the the 12 tribes of Israel. Then we come to the book of Judges. So the Israelites had disobeyed God's command to completely remove the Canaanites from the promised land, and they begin to worship the gods of the Canaanites. So this begins numerous cycles of sin in the book of Judges. There's a pattern that we see over and over here. Israel sins, God delivers them over to their surrounding enemies, the surrounding nations. Then Israel cries out to God. God raises up a judge to deliver them. But then when the judge dies, Israel falls back into sin and the process starts all over again. And when I say judge here, I don't mean a legal judge, okay? So don't picture a judge sitting in a courtroom with a robe. They're really more like military leaders in the Bible. So some examples include Gideon and Deborah and Samson. But then eventually, Israel begins to long for a king, just like the surrounding nations had a king. So when we come to 1 Samuel, Saul is anointed the first king of Israel. And Saul is really the people's choice for king. Okay, He's the tallest, he's the most handsome, but he's not a good king, and he fails to trust God. The second king is David, and David becomes king about 1,000 years before Christ. And David is faithful to God, and he restores true worship in Israel. And God promises David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he will have a descendant who will sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so keep that in mind. We'll talk more about that later. But even David has flaws as we see when he commits adultery with Bathsheba 
And then he has her husband killed so he can take Bathsheba as his wife. Then David and Bathsheba have a son named Solomon who becomes the next king of Israel. And Solomon initially has great success and he builds a temple in Jerusalem for God's presence to dwell in. But Solomon later takes many wives. He falls victim to idolatry and he starts to turn away from the Lord. And when Solomon's son Rehoboam then takes over as king, his foolish leadership causes the nation of Israel to divide into two kingdoms. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 12. Now there's a northern kingdom, which keeps the name Israel because a majority of the tribes, 10 tribes, remain loyal to the north. And there's a southern kingdom called Judah because Judah is the larger of the two southern tribes. Judah and Benjamin are in the south. So through First and Second Kings, we see lists of king after king for both Israel and Judah. And all of the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel are evil. So God allows Assyria to come and to conquer Israel and to take them into exile. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 17. So the northern kingdom of Israel is exiled and they never truly return to the land. The southern kingdom of Judah has a few good kings and they hold on a little bit longer, but eventually their sin also leads to their demise. So God then allows Babylon, who at this point has conquered Assyria, God allows Babylon to take Judah into exile in 586 BC. So the Jews, which comes from the name Judah, are in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Then Persia comes along and defeats Babylon, and the Persians allow the Jews to return to the promised land. So in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews return to the land, they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But the temple is rebuilt only modestly, and God's presence doesn't dwell in the temple like it once did. And Persia is still in control, so there's no king from David's line on the throne. So the Old Testament ends in anticipation as the Jewish people wait for a coming king who will restore them. The Old Testament is really a story without an ending. But then, this is where it gets good, okay? Then about 400 years later, we come to the New Testament Gospels and Jesus is born. So Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is born to the line of Abraham and David. And Jesus' life parallels Israel's history in a lot of ways. So Israel, remember, went to Egypt to survive a a deadly famine. And in the same way, Jesus' family goes to Egypt to escape King Herod's murderous threats. Israel crossed the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River before beginning his ministry in Israel. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons who became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus chose 12 men to be his closest followers. So in all of these events, Jesus relives aspects of Israel's history. But this time, there's a different outcome. Jesus lives a sinless life, fulfilling the law that Israel had failed to keep over and over and over. And then Jesus dies a criminal's death on a cross, paying the price for the sins of not only Israel, but for the entire world. Jesus fulfilled God's righteous standards that Israel and all of mankind had failed to keep. But Jesus doesn't stay in the grave. He rises from the dead on the third day, demonstrating his victory over sin and death. 
And before ascending into heaven, Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. So a couple notes here. By bringing a blessing to the entire world, Jesus, who you remember is a descendant of Abraham, fulfills the promises made to Abraham that a worldwide blessing would come through him. And as the eternal king who will sit on his throne forever, Jesus, who's also a descendant of David, fulfills God's covenant with David. And then through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus initiates a new covenant, which replaces the old covenant that was given through Moses at Mount Sinai. The Mosaic covenant showed God's righteous standards, but Israel was incapable of meeting those standards. Now, through the new covenant, since Jesus met God's standards for us, everybody who trusts in him is saved. Now, quickly to to finish out the story here. The book of Acts then records the gospel, which means good news, spreading throughout the Mediterranean region, thanks in large part to the missionary work of the Apostle Paul. And then the rest of the New Testament consists of letters written to churches and individuals. And these letters further explain the significance of what Jesus did, and they teach us how to live in light of what Jesus has done for us. The final letter, Revelation, tells us that Jesus will return to earth a second time to complete God's plan of salvation and to establish his eternal kingdom. It says that God will redeem people from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's Revelation 5. And he will create a new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell with his people forever. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's Revelation 22. And that is the big picture of the Bible. So God creates the world and mankind. Mankind falls into sin and rebels against God. God graciously makes promises to Abraham and to his descendants, the Israelites. Israel fails to keep their end of the covenant. But Jesus, the true Israel, the true son of God, fulfills the law for us so that everyone who trusts in him will be saved and will spend an eternity with him. So find hope. Find hope in this incredible story of redemption. And remember to keep this big picture in mind while you're reading the Bible. If you keep this big picture in mind, it will really help you to make sense of some of the smaller details of Scripture. Now, I know this is just a 30,000-foot view, but we're going to cover more details in the weeks ahead as we start to look at how each of the individual books of Scripture contribute to the story. But that's all for this week. Remember, as we mentioned today, Jesus left his disciples with these parting words. Go and make disciples of all nations. The whole purpose behind this podcast is to equip you so that you can make Jesus' final words your first work. 